Welcome to Ask Art, a podcast brought to you by me, Senator Art Haywood, where we will cover politics, policy, social justice issues, and everything in between. Thank you so much for joining us again. This is the beginning of Women's History Month, and I'm so fortunate to have live today Sister Carol. I always just call her Sister Carol. She is the CEO of Chestnut Hill College. Some of you may or may not be familiar with Chestnut Hill College. It is a private institution right on the edge of Philadelphia and Montgomery County in Chestnut Hill. Sister Carol will share more with us on what her life has been, her leadership, opportunities, and opportunities in higher education for women and how that builds, how higher education builds opportunities. But before we get to Sister Carol, I'd like to share a few updates about what's happening in the district. I was so fortunate yesterday to participate in four reading events. We started at Edmonds Elementary, then Wincote Elementary, then Pastorius Elementary, and finally Roslyn Elementary. We met with uh, first, second, and third graders, did some reading, but also had some good conversations about the role of government, what senators do and don't do, and how I am accountable to each of them. At this time, I wanna thank all of the students, all of the teachers, all the principal and staff, all of those principals who helped create these events. Cannot thank them enough. Next, you may have heard this week, our local governments have changed the mask requirements for indoor masking. Generally speaking, their mask requirements for indoors have been eliminated, but that's only generally speaking. There are still mass requirements in Philadelphia related to healthcare institutions and public transportation. Private businesses can also establish their own requirements, whether it's for vaccination or masking. So please be attentive to the stores. If there is a mass required sign on a store, observe it. But if not, mass requirements are generally off. This is a significant change in our COVID-19 environment. Two years ago, in, in March of 2020, is when we went under all of the pressure of lockdowns and scares. Now, two years later, it looks like we're finally coming out of this terrible period in the history of our own lives and the history of the nation. Last, yes, this is Women's History Month. What we're going to do this month on social media and beyond is highlight the significant contributions that women have made to Northwest, Philadelphia, to Montgomery County, Philadelphia, the state, and the entire nation. We hope to bring on guests from around the region and around the nation who can share their experiences with you. Today, we start. Again, thank you so much, Sister Carol, for joining us. 
And if you could just please share, I guess start off sharing something about yourself to introduce yourself to all the folks. Good morning and thank you, Senator. I'm a sister of St. Joseph's and uh, I have been at Chestnut Hill College for 34 years, but I am finishing 30 years as president on June 30th, 2022. So we have just named a new president, Dr. William Latimer, uh, who will take over the helm on July 1st. And I look forward to welcoming him. He's the first lay president of the college. Uh, he has a wonderful wife and beautiful family. And I'm sure he will make many outstanding contributions to our community. I grew up in a military family. My father was from Cranston, Rhode Island, and my mother was from Washington, DC. And he went to the Naval Academy and then became commissioned as a Marine Corps officer. And so I have spent my entire life uh, as a young person traveling from place to place. I went to 13 different schools growing up and lived in many different places. My earliest memories are living with my grandparents while my father was overseas. And my mother and I were there for many months. And my grandmother became the strongest influence in my life. It was from her that I really learned about my faith, about scripture, about Jesus. And it's interesting for you to know, I was born and raised an Episcopalian. I didn't become a Catholic until I was a senior in high school. So I've had, I would say the best of both worlds in terms of learning about and loving Christianity. But when I was uh, uh, only four years old, my father came back and we were transferred to San Juan, Puerto Rico. My earliest memories are of that lush, tropical, beautiful paradise. And as a little girl, I was one little girl among many little boys who happened to be around me as neighbors. And it was there that I think I first got my taste of leadership. I seemed to be the one they looked to for, for leadership. And the one thing I did that my parents constantly reminded me of as I grew up was I would take that pack of little boys and I would go to the window outside the base commander's office and I would have them sing the Marine Corps hymn. Now they were all from Navy families except me. And the commander of the base was a naval officer, but he would very willingly come to the window, stand at attention and salute us as we sang. I think it's a miracle my father wasn't court-martialed, but the commander of the base had a great sense of humor and he liked little children. So I would say that was my first foray into leadership. We lived at uh, Quantico, Virginia, which is a, a major Marine Corps base, a, a number of, of different times uh, when I was growing up. And um, I went to uh, school also in Camp Pendleton, California, uh, of happy memory. I think of all the places I have ever lived. That is the one that, that I most dearly love. And it was when I was in California 
that I first became interested, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Catholic Church. All of my friends were Catholic, and they set such a powerful example for me in terms of going to confession every Saturday, every Sunday going to church. And we had kind of lapsed in going to church, and I missed it very much. And I was invited to go with my friends to church on Easter Sunday with them. And I went and something happened that morning at mass that changed the whole course of my life. But it wasn't until I was a senior in high school, we were back on the East Coast living in Vienna, Virginia, that I was allowed to become a Catholic. And that's where I met the Sisters of St. Joseph. And they became a powerful influence on my life. Their joy, their care for other people, their sense of right and wrong, their welcoming atmosphere that they set invited me in. And so before I even became a Catholic, I told my parents I wanted to be a nun. Now you can just imagine how well that went down with my family. But they got to know the sisters. They got to love and like the sisters. So they kind of tolerated my choice. But over the years, they really came to respect that choice and to love the sisters of St. Joseph dearly. As a sister of St. Joseph, I taught in elementary school. I taught in secondary school. I was a director of activities at St. Rose High School in Belmar. And then I went to Cardinal Doherty High School, one of the largest Catholic high schools in the world at that time, 3,300 students, and I was director of activities. And that's where I really learned about leadership and the responsibilities associated with it. From there, I went to get my doctorate, and it was after I got my doctorate that I came to the college. I founded a holistic spirituality program as a faculty member. I was chair of the religious studies department, and then I was invited to apply to become the sixth president of Chestnut Hill College. So that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of, of my background. That was uh, really revealing and the first time I've actually heard it. Could you share a little bit more about what the sisters do, who they are, this sisterhood that you are part of? Could you share more about that, please? Yes. Sisters of St. Joseph were founded in 1650 in Lepuy, France. So we're a very old congregation. We came to the United States in the 19th century to St. Louis, specifically Carondelet. And from St. Louis, we spread out throughout the United States and Canada. Our mother house at Chestnut Hill, when I entered, had 2,600 sisters associated with it. And we were primarily educators. But after Vatican II, we launched out into other waters and became uh, religious educators in parishes. We entered into social work areas. We also expanded into somewhat, but not, not largely, into nursing. The mission of the Sisters of St. Joseph is that we live and work so that all people may be united with God and with one another. And I think one of the most powerful statements 
uh, in our, or our uh, the literature about the Sisters of St. Joseph is one I share with our college community constantly. And that is, we have an active, inclusive love for every kind of dear neighbor without distinction from whom we do not separate ourselves. I think that is one of the most powerful, inspiring, and exhortative statements that we have in our various constitutions. Whoa. And we try to live by that at the college. And I think it's, it's something our country needs to be living by. Yeah, most certainly we need to have a much greater ability to include people from all walks of life. Now that you've shared, you know, your biography, can you share a little bit more about your leadership as a woman in the college and what that has looked like? Well, I think I have not had many of the hurdles that I know a number of women face when they enter into leadership and the questions that they face and even downright hostility that sometimes they encounter. Because from the very beginning, women religious founded and led schools, established and led hospitals, created social ministries, and were the ones who were responsible for them. So in the tradition of women religious, we have always been CEOs. It is nothing out of the ordinary for us. Whereas other women really did not have those opportunities, certainly to the degree that we have had them. Now, of course, as a woman in the Catholic church, I sometimes feel marginalized, uh, my voice not heard, um, not being admitted to priesthood, for example, having that open to women. So I have a sense of what exclusion can be. But at the same time, I would have to say that that same Catholic church has given all sorts of opportunity to women religious throughout the years. And we have changed lives. We have changed the face of the United States. We educated the immigrant populations as they came in and gave them the opportunity to transform their lives and the lives of their families. And so we have really made an astoundingly positive impact on the face of this country. And we continue to help those who are new to America, the immigrants and the refugees who are coming in we're in positions where we can make decisions about how we use our resources to help other people gain the resources they need to live fulfilling and meaningful lives. So you've raised something that is really new to me, how you describe the women religious distinct from the Catholic church in terms of hierarchy and organization. So, who are these women religious beyond yourself? Who are some other leaders who are part of this activity? I was gonna say movement, but just part of what you've just described to us. You know, our numbers are diminishing 
but mm. there were literally tens of thousands of us around the world. Uh, Sisters of St. Joseph are just one brand name, so to speak, mm-hmm. but certainly the Franciscans who follow in the steps of St. Francis of Assisi, the Dominicans associated with Dominic, uh, the Mercy Sisters who are very present here in uh, the Diocese of, of Philadelphia, um, the Carmelites, the Benedictines. You could go on and on and on with name after name of religious congregations that were founded to meet the needs of the times in which they were founded. We always have been called to service, to care for the other, to meet the needs that other people were not meeting. And the list would go on and on of the names of congregations. Sisters of the Holy Child Jesus, another group who run Rosemont College. Sister Servants of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, who run Immaculata College. I think you. many people in Philadelphia are very familiar with all of these various religious congregations. Yes. Thanks so much for bringing more clarity to that. To that. Now, you did share that um, some of these congregations are shrinking. And I want to now turn to some um, opportunities as well as we've talked a little bit about challenges, but some people might see that your successor, being a man, is a step backwards for women in leadership. Since you've been the leader at the college, for, as you say, over three decades, how do you see future opportunities for women giving the shrinking that you've just described and possibly even the transition at Chestnut Hill College? I would have to say that Dr. Latimer is the best person for this job. We interviewed uh, several very highly qualified individuals who had applied as part of the search, and he simply stood out. And I think, yes, we're making a change. And I think it's good that we're making a dramatic change. He won't be compared to me. For example, I've been here a long, long time, and it's easy to make comparisons for good or for ill. But he is a completely different presence coming to the college with a wife who is an academician, who is a researcher, professor at NYU in New York. She is coming here with him. She'll commute back and forth when she has to go up there. And three little girls, 10, 8, and 2. What a wonderful presence for the college. And the fact that he has such an accomplished wife who doesn't intimidate him and three little girls means he's a man committed to the advancement of women. And I think the fact that more and more women are being educated, have advanced degrees, not just a bachelor's, but a master's and a doctorate, that all sorts of opportunities and doors are going to open for women moving into the future. I I, I will tell an anecdote. There was a a woman who went to Chestnut Hill College many, many years ago. I I believe it was the, the late 30s. She wanted to be a doctor. And her father told her, women do not become doctors. And so you, you will not become a doctor. And so she graduated from college and she went to work 
at a financial services place. And those people that she worked for really told her how to invest her money. So when she passed, Chestnut Hill College got a million dollars to endow a scholarship that would provide money for someone majoring in pre-med. She got the last word. (laughs) But now today, of course, our young women go on, they go on to medical school in, in, in large numbers. They go to law school, they get their MBAs and they get prestigious positions. And I think that's more and more open to women, even though I know it's still hard in many sectors, especially in the business world, where I've had alums tell me how difficult it is to be the only woman in the room. But I think our consciousness hopefully is changing in in every respect about the dignity and the worth and the potential of every person. Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm also hopeful that with uh, significant effort, as well as endowments, as you have just described, of a million dollars or so, that will create uh, the foundation for even more opportunity. So you've been in higher education for several decades, leadership, even before that as an academician, wondering how you see the role of higher education in promoting the inclusion that you talked about, as well as promoting opportunities for women. What's the role of higher education? I think higher education has a responsibility to promote opportunities for all those who have not had opportunities, to find a way to provide the education that changes lives and families and the future and the history of families. Higher education communities have the potential to make certain that women taste what it is to be leaders while they're undergraduates on their campuses and take that experience with them when they graduate and go into the professional world. I think it's key in representing the right values and the right attitudes towards women. How we treat women as institutions of higher education, how we unlock their potential and give them opportunities to explore the possibilities latent within them also affects the young men on campus who are watching this happen. And as role models, we can create and change attitudes that men might have with regard to the potential of women. And I see that as key in helping women reach all of the pinnacles that they are capable of achieving. I'm so glad you added that element of the impact on men. And often in these discussions, we don't get to that question of what changes men need to make for inclusion. So what would you say are some of the things that you have seen that your leadership has produced in men who have attended Chestnut Hill College, as well as the women, because you're right, uh, to be fully inclusive, 
we've got to get everyone's hearts in the right place. Well, you, you know, Senator, that we were a women's college for 78 years. So that love and respect and care and belief in women is in the walls. You can't escape it when you come on this campus. And remember when we announced that we were going co-ed back in uh, 2001, the consternation of the young women at this, this announcement, some of them, not all of them. So I remember saying to them then, we are going to graduate men that you would want to marry. We're going to graduate the right kind of men who, who understands and respects and cares for women. And I want to tell you, I think our students at the college are, are those kind of men. Uh, to hear them talk, for example, about responsibility to the dear neighbor, to see their commitment to service and care for others, to see their respect for women uh, is, is very heartening because that's who we are and that's how we live and that's what we expect. And I don't know, I, some of them I'm sure come in that way. They got it from their families and others catch it while they're here. I am amazed at how many marriages we have had hmm. since going co-ed. It's absolutely incredible um, and, and wonderful to see. We're gonna be co-ed uh, 20 years into uh, 2023. And I'm hoping we're going to compile something that celebrates all of these marriages of alumni. I think that you have to model the behavior you want to see. And when you model that behavior and people see that it's good and, and, and become unthreatened by it because they know they're respected and cared for in their own right. You don't raise up women to denigrate men. You raise them both up together to complement and help each other. Wow. That's a so, so powerful statement. And, as I think about the transition that this nation is in and has been in to be more inclusive of, of women, it also requires being more inclusive of men, immigrants, uh, people from different ethnic backgrounds. So there's an entire inclusion project that our nation is really under at this time and has been under, you could say, for the entire history of the nation becoming a much more inclusive place uh, over time. It may be happening a little bit faster now uh, than it did in the prior centuries, but uh, yeah, this inclusion project continues forward. So Sister Carol Jean Vile, we're running out of time for in our half an hour segment, but would like to give you a chance to share Anything that I may have missed in terms of a question, uh, response you want to provide, given the question that I asked, anything that you want to really share with this morning? There are a couple things. As I was growing up, my father used to say to me, Carol, you can do anything you want to do. You can be anything you want to be but you have to work for it. And there's the rub. We have to work for it mm -hmm. to achieve our dreams and our goals. 
we have to use the elbow grease God gave us in order to be successful. Something else I think is very important for leaders to realize, and that is that oftentimes we learn more from our failures than we learn from our successes. If we analyze them, if we really think about them carefully and understand where we perhaps went wrong and made mistakes, that'll help not to make those mistakes again. And then I think something very dear to my heart is a quote by Emily Dickinson, and that is, I dwell in possibility. Leaders have to dwell in the possible, always with an eye to the future. They have to have impossibly daring visions of the possible in order to move forward and make progress. And that is a quote that I got from the great Protestant theologian, Walter Brueggemann to have impossibly daring visions of the possible. And if we have those, and if we work to make them come alive, then not only do we feel gratified, but we make lives meaningful for other people as well. Wow, thank you so much. And I wanna thank everyone who's joining us for this 30 minute conversation. Those final words are certainly inspirational, not just to those who are listening, but to me as well. And we wanna wish you all the best as you make this transition out of leadership. I'm sure you'll still be active in the community, uh, doing exactly what you described, the inclusive work so critical for building a better community and society. I can't thank you enough. Obviously, being a joy to work with you and all the time that I've been in the State Senate of Pennsylvania. Please, let's wish Sister Carol a tremendous retirement. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining this episode of Ask Art, and please stay tuned for our next episode. As always, you can find everything at SenatorHaywood.com. Thank you.